Good morning. Welcome back to the National Capital Bible Church. Before we do anything this morning, let's uh, prepare ourselves using spiritual preparation using 1 John 1.9. Please bow your heads and use 1 John 1.9 and I'll open with prayer. Let us pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to assemble together at National Capital Bible Church. We're here because we love you and we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we pray now, Father, that as we look into your word and proceed with the rest of our service, that everything we say, think, and do would be honoring and glorifying to thee. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The call to worship this morning is taken from Psalms 59. Psalms 59. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalms 59. Psalms And with Psalms 59, we're going to be looking at all 17 verses, and I'm going to comment on several verses um, at the end. I think it's okay. Psalms 59, beginning with verse 1, says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me, and behold, you therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. At evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you, his strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. 
Let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. And at, ev- at evening they return, they growl like a dog, and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food, and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. Now, I want you to notice a few things here. Verse 1 talks about seeking God's protection, where he says, Deliver me from my enemies, from those who rise up against me. And then he highlights, the psalmist highlights the malicious intent. You find this in verses 2 to 4, where he describes enemies who seek to harm with violence, lies, and schemes. Verse 5, there's an appeal for justice. In verse 5, he says, You, Lord God Almighty, you are the God of Israel. Rouse your punish yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. And then the psalmist affirms God's strength in verse 9. You are my strength. I, w- I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress. Then in verses 16 and 17, you have the assurance in, in God's faithfulness. But I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress, speaking of solidarity and strength, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. God, you are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. Five interesting solid points to bring to take us through the new year. So now I'd like to call on Deacon David to start us off with songs. This morning is Communion Sunday. So I'd like to recall and remind you all that as we gather together, let us remember the profound impact of this moment. Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. So he's referring to his body, and I'll have the deacons stand and get ready for the elements to be distributed. The body was a, he was, he took on the second nature, which is flesh, so that the sin debt can be paid for. And because of his sacrifice, we now have life everlasting. As you know, God could not die, and so he took on the human nature so that he can go on the cross and pay the sin debt, thus giving us the capability or the 
freedom to acquiesce to his sacrifice, which was accomplished on the cross. So now Jesus is symbolizing his life through the bread, in which he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. And he says something at the end, which I think is very important for us to recall. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So we're gathered together to recall what he has accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. And so the bread and the juice is symbolic of his entire life. And because of that, we truly have life everlasting. We have freedom in Christ. We have answered prayer as we go to him. We have rapport with the sovereign living God. So as we gather and we partake of these elements, let us remember the impact that it has for those of us who are believers in Christ. And I'll ask now for the bread to be distributed. Father, thank you, as always, for allowing us to recall what your son had done on the cross. Bread that is being distributed now represents his body. If it were not for his body and his uh, sacrifice, we would not have anything to look forward to. But because of his sacrifice, we now have rapport with thee. Thus showing the love that you have for the world as well as the love that Jesus had for us. So both God the Father and God the Son demonstrates the love of all of humanity. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to partake in this solemn moment called communion. Let us partake together. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So repeatedly, the word remember is stated throughout this passage. So part of worship entails remembering him. So as the juice is being distributed, please hold it and then we'll partake together. It's clear in scripture that the new covenant is connected to his blood. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity once again to remember you through your Son, Jesus Christ. As we partake in the juice, we know that this is symbolic of his blood. Because of this, we now experience the new covenant, no longer under the Mosaic system, but now under the new covenant as a result of Jesus' sacrifice. Thank you for this opportunity to to partake in this together as a family. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already, because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. This morning the objective is going to be moving through the latter portions of our series on basics. I'm going to cover some things from the past And I'm going to show you how this bleeds into the churches today. So the slides will take us through. We're going to review some previous truths, then proceed with how this sways churches today. I guess we could have... Dismiss the the kids, huh? Well, you're dismissed. (laughs) But before we proceed with the slides in front of us, let's take a look at 2 Peter 1, 2-3. This will be our starting verse here to move us through the rest of the notes. Second Peter one, two to three. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. What is repeated here in this verse, in these two verses? Knowledge. So in order for us to experience what 2 and 3 is saying, knowledge must be in the front. Grace and peace is multiplied to you in the knowledge of who? Hmm? 
Look again. Not a trick question. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. What is it, Judy? That's right. And of Jesus, our Lord. So there's two. There's two things we're to focus on and study on and to incorporate the word knowledge. Grace and peace is multiplied to you in the knowledge of God the Father, in the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. That's important as we get into the Word of God and as we move through and navigate through 2024. If you want grace, if you want peace, if you want stability, if there's anything that you would want in the spiritual life, it's contained in God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As his divine power, listen to this, has given to us all things that pertain to what? What does it mean, life and godliness? Holiness, okay, that's connected to godliness. But everything that we would need for life, we don't really need counseling we need life. We need His Word. Now, I'm not opposed to counseling altogether. But please notice, the Word of God, which is focused on God the Father and Jesus Christ, it will be multiplied to you, what will? Grace and peace will be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God the Father and Jesus our Lord as His divine power, whose power? God's has given to us all things that pertain to what? Life and godliness. Godliness there is the idea of spiritual life. How do we live? How do we live holy? How do we live and take care of life, day-to-day -day activities? Through His divine power. How do we tap into His divine power? The knowledge of God the Father, the knowledge of God the Son. If you take in His Word, it's going to be multiplied to you as far as His divine power that help will help us with life and holiness. See, sometimes we try to be holy, we try to be good, and it's tough. Because remember what I said last year, or 2022? It's not hard. It's impossible. It's impossible to live the spiritual life on your own volition, on your own willpower. You can't do it. So this is why we're starting off with this as a strong reminder as we navigate and move through 2024. It's a new year. Some of you might be saying, it's so hard. I go to church. I'm trying to smile. I'm trying to keep a positive attitude. It's not about trying. It's not about putting on a smile on your face. Please notice, grace and peace, that's the inner stability, will be given and multiplied to you, but it comes as a direct result of the knowledge of God the Father, knowledge of God the Son, Jesus our Lord. And it results in divine power, and, it, and He has given us divine power to us, to all things that pertain to life. The power is given to us so that we can navigate through life. 
We can have everything we would need for life and, what's the second word? Holiness, godliness. So you're trying to live a spiritual life, that's going to come as a direct result of whose power? Not Judy's power, not Brian's power, not Everett's power. It's coming from the divine power that comes as a direct result of looking and studying the knowledge of God the Father and God the Son as we acquiesce, as we take in, as we inculcate God's word, focusing on the Father, which is God here, and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain. He, in other words, another way of saying this, He has given us all things we need for life, giving us all things we need for spiritual life and life. And this comes to the knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue. So it's important to start us off correctly by noticing that divine power is always tagged to knowledge. Knowledge. So, <clears throat> this is saying... That the knowledge that the believers can gain from looking at the Father and at the Son through His Word will receive everything needed for life and godliness. Daily living and spiritual life. That's Second Peter 1, 2 to 3. So recall the title here. We're going to pursue, proceed and see how this sways and impacts the churches today. Which is why... We have been this on this for a little while now. Remember this? Um, you guys remember this uh, saying by Dr. Pentecost? This is one of the first reasons why I chose to pursue this as a study. Discipleship is frequently frequently equated with salvation and often erroneously made a condition for becoming a Christian. Thus, many are confused. What's another word for confused? They're confused about the relationship to Jesus Christ. What's another, another way of saying this? Can anyone paraphrase this for me? And then I'll give you Freddie's paraphrase. What's that, Scott? Their faith is weak. Okay, what else? They don't know him. So, listen closely. Discipleship is frequently equated with salvation. So, if you don't walk the walk, you're not saved. These are all very good. Okay, here's my... My paraphrase on Dr. Pentecost's, this is his foreword. Discipleship is sometimes wrongly seen as a requirement for salvation, causing confusion about one's relationship to Jesus. In essence, being a Christian doesn't depend on discipleship as a condition for salvation. See, in simple terms, what the author said when he wrote this book is that, look, in churches today, a lot of people take those verses that relate to discipleship, 
follow me, pick up your cross, and then say, that's what a real Christian is. If you don't come and walk the aisle as the organist is playing a hymn and receive Jesus into your heart, you're not saved today. Have you heard that before? And the truth is, it's not about following Jesus. It's about believing in Him. Believing in Him for what? What does He say here? Discipleship is frequently linked or equated with salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation. Following Jesus has nothing to do with salvation. Repeat, following Jesus has nothing to do with salvation. What does a person have to do to be saved? Believe in Christ. Well, why follow him then? What's the purpose for following? To show that we love him. Discipleship. Right? That's the time that we follow him when we're talking about discipleship. Those terms cannot be confused. They cannot be conjoined because they're separate. They're separate concepts. To be a Christian takes a millisecond. To be a disciple takes a lifelong... It's lifelong. Discipleship is lifelong. To be a Christian, it's milliseconds. Faith in Christ is not the same thing as following Christ. This is why I believe many people don't want to go to church because they say, if I go to church, then you're going to make me, you're going to make me do this, you're going to make me promise, you're going to make me change my life, you're going to make me do this and promise all these things, never to do these things again. That's under discipleship though. We scare people away because they say, well, I didn't see you last week. I didn't see you the week before. That's more of discipleship, not what it means to be a Christian. Believe it or not. What's the difference between being a Christian and a disciple? A Christian refers to our position. Whereas discipleship refers to our experience. You see the difference? One is our position in him. The other is our experience with Him. In Him, with Him. In Him, with Him. They're two separate concepts. Positional truth, experiential truth. Let's not blur the two. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, I have been focused on phase two salvation. Because I believe, not not only what Dwight Pentecost said here, but during my seminary days, positional truth is often confused with experiential truth. And when I first learned that in school, in seminary, I thought that was a, I had an aha moment. I said, you know, I wish I would have known about this sooner because here I am trying to live the Christian life in my own strength. Then I realized it's not about living the Christian life in my own strength. First of all, it's not about you It's about Him, His power, His his enablement. How do you access that enablement through 1 John 1, 9 and the application of His Word? But do we hear this in churches today? Not the churches that, that I've been a part of 
growing up in my years. It's all about follow Jesus. If you love him, you will do this, that, and the other. You will not look at this. You will not watch this. You will not drink this. You will not partake in this. You'll wear kosher clothes. You won't wear anything too loose, too baggy, because you're like the world. Have you heard that before? That's what we hear today. And no wonder why people don't want to come to church, because it's dull and dry. Yeah, how would you like to hear, don't do this, don't do that. That's like a parent bombarding their kids every single day. Don't do this, don't listen to that, don't do that, don't watch this, don't dress like that. After a while it gets old. But guess what? That's happening in churches today. That's why I believe by the time we're done with this, you'll see what I mean when I said it sways the churches, okay? So again, discipleship is frequently equated with salvation. Remember this. Here's our slide. Again, from last year, 2022, actually, August 2022. We focused, I'm focused on phase two because I think this is the most important phase that we need to live through. We don't have to worry about phase one because you're all believers in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you have been justified. Unless you are not sure that you are going to heaven, you must take care of that first and not worry about phase two or phase three. Phase two is in the middle. Phase three is at the end. So if you are not sure if you're going to heaven, you can take care of that now. How? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Don't I have to change my life? Don't I have to cut my hair? No. It's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. Where? On the cross 2,000 years ago. We partook in communion just moments ago. That was a remembrance of what he has accomplished on the cross. The shed blood of Christ, his body which has been broken for you and for me. So if you're here online and you've never, ever, ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can do that right now without anybody even knowing. You can secure that right now by believing in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is believe in his promise. He went on the cross. You know about that already. But Jesus said when speaking to Nicodemus, Do not marvel. You must be born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe in his promise, he's obligated to answer that and give you everlasting life. It's not about changing your life. So now we've been focused on the middle. If you're listening online, the middle, the second, right there in the middle, it's phase two salvation. I'm being saved from what? Power of sin. How to live with power. That's horsepower. The ability to say no to sin. Well, yeah, but it's so hard to be a Christian. Stop saying it's being hard to be a Christian. It's impossible. You must then understand how phase two works in your life as a believer in Christ. Very, very critical. Phase three you don't have to worry about because that is going to take place sometime in the future when the the rapture has occurred, the church is raptured out of here, or you take your last breath. So you must make sure phase one is in place so that phase three will also follow suit in a way That would be in in the presence of the Lord. Otherwise, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you'll spend eternity apart from him. So my journey has been phase two. Because I think there isn't enough focus on phase two. What do I mean by that? Most ministries today, 
if they write books, they have books on basics. If you look at any of the ministries out there that we're familiar with, great, uh, great material. We use it ourselves. Um, I've used it, and I think there's solid material, a lot of doctrinal material out there that are worthwhile and you're worth the time to study. But if you look at their basic system, their basics usually consist of basic truths that will give you the essence of God, um, the importance of confession of sin, and a host of other doctrines that I think we need to study and be familiar with. But there's, in my opinion, there isn't really anything that dials in what it means to live in phase two, where the horsepower comes so that we can say no to sin and say yes to God. Have peace of mind, experience a stability that the scripture talks of, a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's not all going to happen just because you go to Hawaii and you're just enjoying with a, a cup of coffee or whatever. That's not the result of being somewhere. That's a result of God supplying phase two power here and now as a result of understanding phase two. How many times have people come up to me and come up to you and say, you know what, it's so hard. I I. I can't live like this. I'm miserable all the time. Well, I understand. They don't have the concept or the idea of phase two in place. And that's why I've been consistently focused on this because I'm trying to find ways on how to better express, better teach, better cover phase two when people come up to me and say, well, how do you deal with this? So... This is why I've been on this trek for a while, and I know you guys are a part of this journey as well. So now, also with phase two, remember, whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Help me out. What's this talking about here? This is something we all should be familiar with. We see it all the time when we hit James. What does James 2.10 say? Whoever shall keep the whole law, Yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. You know what this means? Anybody? Can't be perfect. Very good. What else? Your friend is asking you to explain this to him or her. Whoever shall keep the whole law... Attempt to keep the whole yet whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of it all. Okay, so if you disregard one thing, you disregard them all. Um, Austin, were you raising your hand? That's pretty strong, right? Everyone's guilty of everything. Because what? We can't keep one point. We stumble in one point. Anybody stumble in one point coming to church this morning? In thought form? Word form? Overt form? Mental, overt, verbal? Has that moving you away from God? Yes. So when you are, when you stumble in one point, you broke them all. What a way to bring in 2024, huh? God's righteousness, correct. And so, you know, we just said, it's not just your words that are 
You can't. So who is righteous under the law? How can we be righteous under the law? What's that, Everett? Through him. So when we have his righteousness, we're positionally perfect now. The only way we can fulfill the law in its entirety is when we acquiesce to Jesus Christ. Which is why positional truth is extremely important. Why? Because you're going to try, not you here, but people are going to try, try, try to keep the law and they're going to try to keep the, the standard operation for people who are not regular churchgoers is I got to keep the Ten Commandments. Right? Their aim is to keep the Ten Commandments. But they don't know that if they place their faith in Jesus Christ, not only can they keep the Ten Commandments, but the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. Imagine that. And the 144 in the New. 144 plus 613, that's a lot. You combine the two, you can keep all of them, not experientially, but positionally, because of your faith in who? Jesus Christ. So he became sin that we might become his righteousness. Those truths coalesce together at the moment of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. We keep all the law, old and new, at the moment of faith. But whoever keep shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. This verse underscores the idea that breaking even one commandment makes a person accountable for breaking the entire law. So that's bad news. Look at this one. Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him it is sin. What's this wasn't talking about? Rebellion. Okay, what else? Rebellion is there. It could be a part of this. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. What's another way of saying this? Looks like this verse emphasizes the importance of not only avoiding wrongdoing, but actively doing what is right. So not just avoid, but actively do what is right. You see that there in this verse? To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's a sin. So our aim should not just be to avoid, okay, I'm not going to watch this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to drink this. But we're all supposed to, we're also supposed to be actively pursuing to do what is right. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Avoid sin is one thing, but actively doing what is right is another, according to this verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, and do not quench the Spirit of God, First Thessalonians 5.19. These are both negatives with regards to the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve, do not quench the Spirit, because that's where we get our horsepower. Ephesians 4.30, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Both very important, especially Ephesians 4.30. We grieve every time we commit a sin, be it mental, overt, or verbal. 
The way to uh, resolve that is First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You guys, remember this. Should believers work on their relationship with God? Why or why not? Should we do things like pray, read your Bible, go to church? Is that part of uh, working on our relationship with God? You remember this? Or do I need to cover from the first class and go all the way through again? Not a trick question, but it was a it's something to really think about. Should we work on our relationship with God? Oh, very good, Scott. Attitude towards God is iffy. This confuses relationship with fellowship. Here's a, here's a little hint. This confuses relationship with fellowship. What do I mean by that? Relationship versus fellowship. Right? Okay, relationship is phase one. Fellowship is phase two. Relationship is not the same thing as fellowship. Our salvation is based on our relationship to God. However, the level of our discipleship determines our fellowship with God. What do I mean by that? When a person believes in Jesus Christ, their relationship is always intact. However, what fluctuates on a regular basis is our rapport with God. Did we commit a sin? Well, our fellowship has been stunted. Our relationship hasn't. We're always, we will always be a son or a daughter of God no matter what. But our fellowship or our rapport with God can always fluctuate depending on the sin. Relationship will never be affected. What if we commit sin? Relationship is intact. Never changes. Even if sin occurs, yes. Doesn't change. Do you have a son or a daughter? When they disobey you, are they no longer your son or daughter? They will always be your son or daughter. But the rapport between the two of you will change depending on what? Their behavior. Do they listen to dad? Do they listen to mom? If they don't, the rapport has been damaged. The relationship hasn't been. The harmony has. They will always be a son or a daughter of yours, even when they disobey you. Does that make sense? That part never changes. The fellowship changes all on a regular basis. The level of, of our discipleship determines our fellowship with God. A relationship with God begins the moment one receives salvation. However, fellowship with God is sustained through discipleship. Now let's go on to how this sways the church, what I was talking about earlier. You'll see why I think it's important to make the distinctions. In Matthew 16, 24, it says the following. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Here's what the lordship crowd says. What's lordship? Lordship is a, a camp that teaches that you must exhibit fruit in your life to prove what? That you are really, really saved. Let me show you how the lordship view addresses Matthew 16, 24. This position teaches that in this verse, Jesus is calling for complete surrender and submission to him as Lord. Does that sound familiar? Submit to him. Surrender all. This view believes that to be a true follower of Christ, one must not only believe in him, but also commit to obeying and making him the ruler of their life. This view sees this verse as emphasizing the need for discipleship and a willingness to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus, proving regeneration has occurred. What's another word for regeneration? Salvation. Salvation has occurred. So you must have, you must have a willingness to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus, thus proving that your salvation has really occurred. You're proving, Everett, that you are really saved. Now, notice what I put here on this next, let me see if you, you see this arrow? Need for discipleship and a what? What's the word? It starts with a double. W. You must have a willingness. That also must be in place. You must not only exhibit it out, outwardly, but you mentally must have a willingness. You have a willingness to follow? Do you have a willingness to give up everything? If not, you don't have true salvation. It must also be cognitively. You must have it here. Not only surrender all and give up all and follow all and pick up your cross and follow, but you must have a willingness in here. That's lordship. That's what's spilling over and bleeding into the churches in America. Yes, sir. They'll never sin or save. No, they will still sin. Because their aim is to try to live that life. They're going to, they're going to try not to sin. They're going to continue to try. Today was a bad day. Tomorrow might be better. In their mind. Yeah. They're trying. And that's why if, if you hear, um, one of the, famous uh, Reformed uh, pastors who passed away, I think, five years ago, he gauges true salvation by, at the very last second, did he live a life full of good deeds, good works? And then he said, I hope, I hope that I will be saved. I hope that God will recognize my efforts. That's That's a sad way to live your life. Yes, Judy? That's right. You're, you're spot on, Judy. Spot on with that. And that's my point. How could people look at this and look at this verse and say, well, well, I can see why. Because if I, if I'm just a gregarious and charismatic pastor, I can take to say, look, folks, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up the cross and follow me. And by the way, there's a nice box back there. Be sure as you leave, give a little love gift in the back here, okay? Deny yourself and don't forget about us. Don't forget about the church. Pick up the cross and follow me. That's how they teach today. This is lordship. And although they might not identify as a lordship church, are they living and acting out lordship theology? Yes. In fact, there are other denominations, which I will not mention right now. But there are some systems of faith that are huge and global that I, they will not identify as lordship, but they will identify as this church, this denomination. And they're big. But let me, let me read this verse one more, more time so that you can see how someone can misunderstand this. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. Get behind me and follow me. So this is the lordship view. It teaches that Jesus is calling for complete surrender, complete submission to him as Lord. And it believes that a true follower of Christ must not only believe in him, but must commit to obeying and making him the ruler of their life. This view sees this verse as emphasizing the need for discipleship and a willingness to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus, proving you're really saved or regeneration has occurred. So how would you interpret this verse before I show the free grace position? How would you see this verse? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, very good. Second phase, that's right. In the chart, phase one, two, and three, it is phase two. Very good. No, it's not a salvation issue. So what issue is this? That's for lordship. Very right. Very good. So now let's look at the free grace position. Free grace believes that this verse is not about salvation or earning eternal life, but rather about the cost and commitment of discipleship. You see that? It's about the commitment and the cost of discipleship, but it has nothing to do with eternal life or salvation. This view argues that Jesus is speaking to his disciples who were already believers. And he is challenging them to take up their cross and follow him faithfully. This position sees this verse as a call to live a dedicated and sacrificial life as a follower of Jesus. But this view does not believe that salvation is dependent on works or obedience. This view emphasizes that salvation is a gift of God's grace received through faith alone, and discipleship is a response of gratitude and love for what Christ has already done. Which one are you? First one or second one? You don't have to raise your hand. But that's why I'm showing you how this spills into the churches today. This is how some churches, not all churches, they'll take a verse like this and say, this is what it means. You need to come forward. You need to pick up your cross and follow him or else. 
So the free grace view versus the lordship view. Let's look at another passage. There are several we're going to look at. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Let's look at the lordship camp. This view sees a total surrender to Jesus as Lord involving a commitment to follow him wholeheartedly, resulting in a what kind of life? A changed life. Evidence of transformation. This view interprets this verse as emphasizing the transformative nature of salvation. In other words, no root, no fruit. You don't have root in Christ, you won't bear fruit. So if you're not, if I don't see fruit in your life, that means you're not really saved. You must have a changed life to show me that you are truly saved. Is that what this verse is talking about? Austin, are you raising your hand or are you stretching? Okay, it's okay. That's lordship crowd. Free Grace Group argues carrying the cross symbolizes following Jesus. Nothing wrong with following Jesus, right? But it's not a condition for salvation. Instead, salvation is solely by faith in Christ. No works requirement. This position sees this verse as emphasizing following Christ as a what? As a disciple, having nothing to do with salvation. Remember? I've been arguing, I've been saying over and over and over, see what's there, see what's not there. See what's there, see what's not there. Is salvation here in 1427? Do you see the word heaven? Do you see the word hell? Do you see the word word eternal separation? Uh, Salvation, justification? None of that is here. It's not there, so let's not talk about it. Whoever does, does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my what? Disciple. So this is about following Christ. This is about discipleship. This has nothing to do with salvation at all. And yet, these are verses that you will sometimes hear. How about this? How can you, how can you goof up on this verse? For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. How can someone mess this one up, right? Well, let's look at what the Lordship crowd will say. To them, this view teaches that Ephesians 2.8.9 emphasizes that salvation is a gift from God, received through faith alone, pretty good so far. However, there's a problem, however, they also emphasize that true faith, will naturally result in a transformed life or a changed life and good works. So not only will you have a radically different life, you're also going to exhibit that by good works. They believe that while works do not earn salvation, they are evidence of what? Genuine faith. Therefore, they interpret these verses as emphasizing the importance of both faith and resulting good works as evidence of true salvation. Are we opposed to a transformed life? Are we opposed to having good works? No. The difference here, though, is making the distinction between what? Phase one, phase two. Position, experience. 
position, it's in Christ. Our relationship is in Christ. That takes place at a moment's time, milliseconds. So don't judge me if I'm not doing good. You can't tell what took place in my heart, and neither can I of you. I can see whether or not you're following Christ, whether or not you love Christ by your behavior, but you can't tell, you can't say to, to your friends, you know what, Freddie's not a true believer, because if he was, he wouldn't be acting like that. You know what, I might have had a bad, lousy day. Maybe I had a big fight with my wife. She said, she's the boss. And I said, no, you're not. I'm the boss. We've had this tension galore. And so I'm having a lousy day. And so you see me with my head down and I'm feeling miserable. So now you look at me and you say, well, what's wrong with him? He's not a true, he's not really a real Christian. Because if he is, he's going to smile more. And he's going to join us in our prayer meeting. But no, he's not. He's just having a lousy day. You can't judge a person by the external. Faith in God is internal. No one can judge that. No one can see. You never can tell what transpired between a person and God. That's private business. That's personal. That's a transaction that took place in the heart between that person and God. Externally, they might not have good fruit for whatever reason, but we cannot use that as a basis of determining whether he's a true follower or whether or not he's a real Christian. Has nothing to do with that. So Lordship Group will talk about a transformed life, good works, but they will also look at the importance of both faith and the resulting good works as evidence. This is where the problem is. Evidence of what? True salvation. They say, I hope they're saved. I hope they had enough good work. I hope they persevered to the end. Yeah. Well, we don't even know if they were saved at the time of death. They're struggling with that. And those who hold this view will say, we hope he persevered, she persevered to the end. We hope that this person was saved. They, they don't ever, they will never know with certainty. They don't know. And that's the danger of having this kind of view. I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm just trying to bring to light what's currently out there. And this, what, this is what is going in churches today. It impacts the churches today. They're taking verses like this and saying, you know, you have to show evidence of true salvation. This is, this is one of the common marks of traditional churches today. In order to be truly saved, you have to have a victorious life. You have to have a victorious life, a changed life, and it's mishandling of multiple verses. So how does the Free Grace group look at this? Free Grace sees Ephesians 2.8.9 as emphasizing that salvation is entirely a gift from God, received through faith alone and not by any works. They believe that good works are the result of salvation. So you do good works because you're saved, not to be saved. There's a difference. You're doing good works because of it, not to to uh, receive it. It's not a condition for it. They emphasize that salvation is based solely on God's grace and is not dependent on human effort or merit. 
Therefore, they interpret these verses as emphasizing the complete sufficiency of faith in Christ for salvation without the need for additional works or evidence of transformation. Okay? So these are the two opposite views, the two opposing views. How about Romans 3.28? Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. When was the last time you heard that verse? Beginning of the service. This is the last verse of my array of verses. Number seven. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Notice, we conclude that a man is justified, phase one, declared righteous by God, by faith, through faith, apart from what? The deeds of the law. Anything to do with the law. We're, man is justified, man or woman is justified by faith apart from any good deeds of the law. So how does the Lordship crowd interpret this verse? This view contends that faith is accompanied by transformation. Do you see that word again? Repeatedly you see the word transform, change, fruit, a willingness, So it's accompanied by transformation and this view asserts that while faith is crucial, this verse doesn't negate the importance of a transformed life or a different life, a changed life. Faith in this view naturally leads to a life characterized by obedience and good works. Faith is evident in works. This position holds that genuine faith is evidenced by a changed lifestyle. And a, there's that word willingness again. And a willingness to follow Christ's teaching. Do you have a willingness to follow Christ? That's part of the Lordship group. There's nothing wrong with having a willingness. But in the, in the sense of the Lordship group, that's part of true salvation. If you don't even have a willingness, you're not going to Bible class, you're not coming to church, you don't have a willingness to do any of that, then you're not really proving that you are saved. You don't have a transformed life, you're not exhibiting fruit, then you're not saved according to the LS group. So this position holds that genuine faith is evidenced by a changed lifestyle and a willingness to follow Christ's teaching. Works is seen as the fruit of faith and play a role in demonstrating the authenticity of one's belief. Free grace group. This position says that justified by faith underscores salvation through faith alone, separate from works or additional requirements. The exclusion of works. They argue that this verse excludes any role of human works in obtaining salvation, emphasizing a reliance on faith as the sole means of justification. We get that from this verse, right? We conclude that a man is declared righteous or justified by what? Faith, apart from the deeds of the law.
Before we look at the two views here, let's see. Anybody want to take a shot at this? What's this verse talking about? Let me read it for those online. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Did we do all this, Lord? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Foreknowledge? Okay. That's right. Uh, Judy? Okay, false prophets. Okay. Okay, very good. So false prophets, they're not real believers, and that's why he doesn't know them. Very good. David, do you have your hand up? Anybody else? What else do you see here? Okay, verse 22 is all about works. So who's in view here, do you think, in Matthew 7, 21 to 20? Okay, the one who prophesied. Okay, prophesying, casting out demons, doing wonders. Okay, very good. So who do you think these people are? Aside from the false prophets, uh, casting out demons. Okay. Very good. Context is good. Well, let's just say this. This might shock you. I think I said this uh, the first time we looked at this. I think these are churchgoers. People who are think they're believers. They go to church. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Done many wonders in your name? The only ones who will do these things are those who are attending church. You know, if you have you looked online how they they have um, services that cast out demons? There's a lot of ministries that have these services where you join our service on Sunday, we'll get rid of all those demons in your life. There's a lot of ministries like that. Well, what we do know is that many, not some, many will say to me in that day when they're standing in judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? The the sad thing here is that many will be shocked to find out that they're not in good standing with God. Because they will they will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, you who practice sin. Depart from me. There was no relationship. And yet, those in 22 are holding on to their works. 
as a means of saying, well, we do have a relationship with you because remember, we were saying, Lord, Lord, and we were prophesying in whose name? Your name. We were casting demons out in whose name? Your name. Doing wonders in whose name? Your name. So they were using the name of God. They were prophesying in the name of God. They were casting out demons in your name, his name. And they were doing many wonders in his name. Only to find out later on, they were wrong. They were completely wrong. Only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. So these people, how whatever you want to think of who they are, churchgoers, Pharisees, Sadducees, they're only going to hear, sorry, I never knew you. But Lord, we did these things in your name. Don't we get a little credit for that? Sorry, I never knew you. How many people today, ladies and gentlemen, are holding on to something similar because they do not know the verses we've covered thus far? The verses we've looked at thus far, we're just comparing two views and I'm stressing that one particular view has been bleeding into churches all this time. Beginning in the Garden of Eden. That's been the same message all throughout the years. Many will say, did, we did these things in your name. Don't we get a little bit, little credit, recognition for that? Now you're going to tell us to leave? Come on. So there are going to be people standing in verse 21 alone who say, Lord, Lord. So just because you say, Lord, Lord, and call on my name, You'll not enter the kingdom just because you say that. It has nothing to do with calling me by Lord. What is the will of the Father in heaven? That needs to be crystal clear for us as believers. What must a person do for, according to John or Matthew 7.21? What is the will of the Father according to what Jesus is saying here? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So what must we do? What's the will of the Father according to Matthew 7, 21? What must we do? Turn to John 6, 40. John 6.40 says the following. This is the will of him who sent me, referring to the Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the will of the Father. Very clear, concrete, right? This is the will of him who sent me, who sent Jesus. For God so loved the world, the Father sent him, 
This is the will of the Father who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now you look at Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who does the will of my Father in heaven. John 6.40, connected to Matthew 7.21. The will of the Father is to believe in Jesus Christ. And when you do, you will have everlasting life. Now, how many people know this today? Probably not very many. And yet, do they fall into the category of Matthew 7 only to hear, I never knew you? Secure that right now. If you have unbelieving friends and family members, 2024 is the year for you to make a dent in the devil's world. Make an impact, ladies and gentlemen. Introduce them to John 640. Start with John 316 and hammer it. Get it in. Get it done. He who believes in me has everlasting life. Then I will declare to them, I knew you. But believers will not be here because we are face to face with God. Only here they are going to be here. They're going to hear, I never knew you. So let's look at the two opposing views, lordship and free grace. I know the font is small here, so I'll read it. Lordship salvation teaches that in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, what we just read, It emphasizes the importance of genuine faith accompanied by obedience and submission to the Lordship of Christ. Listen to this. They believe that these verses warn against a superficial or false profession of faith. According to this view, those who claim to know Jesus but do not demonstrate a transformed life and obedience to his commands are not truly saved. But wait a minute. This passage shows a transformed life. Wouldn't you agree? Look once again. Wouldn't you say 22 is transformed life? Look at what they did here. Anybody prophesied lately? Anyone cast out demons lately? Scott, have you cast out demons lately? Just a couple. Done many wonders in his name lately? Brian, you've been gone. Have you cast out demons or done many wonders lately? That's a transformed life. That's a supernatural life here. Supernatural acts right here in 22. But they're only going to hear, I never knew you. Depart from me. And yet the Lordship crowd will say, according to this view, those who claim to know Jesus, but do not demonstrate a transformed life and obedience to his commands are not what? Truly saved. They interpret these verses as highlighting the necessity of both faith and obedience as evidence of genuine salvation. Now, whereas the free grace view says it's a warning against relying on works as self-righteousness for salvation, as we've seen in verse 22, this view holds that these verses caution against those who trust in their own deeds and religious accomplishments rather than solely relying on faith in Christ. According to the free grace position, the individuals mentioned in the passage, this passage may have been involved in various religious activities and even perform miracles, but they lacked genuine faith in Christ. What? Can we judge that? I thought you said not to judge a person by the external. 
They're contradi- I'm contradicting the free grace position. That true? How do we? How can we blend this together so I don't look foolish? The emphasis is on the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus as the basis of salvation, rather than relying on external works or religious activities or achievements. This view interprets these verses as highlighting the need for a personal faith in Christ for salvation rather than relying on outward actions or religious performance. Am I... Go ahead, Scott. Very good. You can't. So works will follow relationship. But what I said and what I continue to argue is that a relationship uh, relationship with God cannot be judged by the external. And this is what the free grace position is here as well. Um, but they lack genuine faith. Let me repeat what this view says. The individuals mentioned in this passage may have been involved in various religious activities and even perform miracles, but they lack genuine faith in Christ. How could that be? Because of the last verse. Right here. I declare to them, I never what? Knew you. So there was no relationship. That's why I can say, they can honestly interpret this correctly. The individuals in this passage may have been involved with religious activities and even perform miracles, but they lack genuine faith in Christ. Austin? I'm sorry, repeat that, Austin? So you're saying that they pretended by pretended to be believers? That's interesting, but the, the, the thing here is that Jesus is the one saying this in verse 22. See, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? And by the time you get to 23, he never questions their, he never questions that. He doesn't say, well, yeah, you did all this, but not really. He's basically saying, okay, I will declare to them, I never knew you, those who practice lawlessness. That word lawlessness encompasses 22. So they were doing these things and they were wrong. He equates them, verse 22, to those things that would be considered lawlessness. Because doing these things are not necessarily wrong. What is wrong is that Jesus never knew them. They were not believers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, you're good point, Judy. So they were doing these things and but the issue here in this passage, the reason why they're being told to leave is that there was no relationship between 22 and Jesus. 
that's the whole force of 21 to 23. You have a lot of people saying this. You have a lot of people saying in verse 22, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons and done many wonders in your name? And I know Austin was saying, well, they were lying. They were probably trying to say. Repeat one more time, Austin. You were saying. I, I see your point there. Right, uh, Scott and then I'll add. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, well, the thing is, Austin, I was going to say one last thing. Um, uh, Satan can energize the unregenerate, too. He can certainly, he's behind a lot of the activities that unregenerate people do. Like today, there are people casting out demons, supposedly. But it's not by the power of God. There's two sources of power, God's and Satanic. So, miraculous events, prophesying in, in uh, his name can be done in the energy of Satan. I know people who are ex-witches talk about how they would go into specific churches speaking in tongues. And it wasn't them speaking in tongues. It was energized by satanic powers. And they're now believers in Christ. They, they talk about how they used to be a part of this uh, group, cultic group. And they're now believers. They're following Christ. So I do believe because there's two sources of power, Satan can be behind a lot of these activities, such as prophesying, casting out demons. They can, Satan is, comes as an angel of light. So he can certainly deceive people and energize them to do specific things, as we're seeing in some places today. There's a, I remember in the Philippines, uh, this missionary who was uh, going to one of the islands of the Philippines, they were um, performing surgery with a rusty knife. And they would chant behind, they would blow smoke or uh, offer up smoke and dance around the person who was going to be uh, performed a, a knee surgery. And um, they had a rusty knife and they were chanting behind this person or around this person and they would cut into his knee performing surgery. Blood was gushing out. And because they were chanting and doing all these things, they were able to perform surgery without any problems at all with a rusted knife. It's very interesting how Satan can be behind some of these things and documented, too, for uh, missions, for the missionaries. Um, Laura, was your, were you saying something? Right. Of what's going to happen. They hope it doesn't, but 
they do know prophecy. They do know how they can enter and exit the soul. They do know those wonders. The fact that I think which was confusing, I think, Austin, is the fact that he said, Lord, Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, you're saying he's in your name. Yeah. You know, but that still can be a falsification of the angelic conflict doing that. Right. Hopefully that helps, Austin. I don't know if that made it more confusing. But I, I think Satan is behind a lot of this here. Uh, he is a great deceiver. But you know what? We are out of time. So this is where we will stop. Um, and we'll resume this next week. So let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to examine your word. We know, Father, that as we move through 2024, there's going to be a lot more challenges, and yet at the same time, we have opportunity to serve you and honor you and glorify you in all that we say, think, and do. I pray for our church, National Capital Bible Church, that we would make a dent in the devil's world for the year 2024. We would allow people to know that we exist here so that they, too, can benefit from the teachings of your word. We ask, Father, that all of these things that we are going to do in the year 2024 would be empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. It would not be um, done in the energy of the flesh. We know that we would not be able to accomplish anything were we to do this in our own strength, and our own volition. Thank you, Father, for hearing us, and we ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.